My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 67, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, number 17, Deuteronomy 17, and Psalm 99. Number 17, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and get twelve staffs from them, one from the leader of each of their ancestral tribes. Write the names of each man on his staff. On the staff of Levi, write Aaron's name. For there must be one staff for the head of each ancestral tribe. Place them in the tent of meeting in front of the Ark of the Covenant Law, where I meet with you. The staff belongs to the man I choose will sprout, and I will rid myself of this constant grumbling against you by the Israelites." So Moses spoke to the Israelites and their leaders gave him 12 staffs, one for the leader of each of the ancestral tribes, and Aaron's staff was among them. Moses placed the staffs before the Lord in the tent of the covenant law. The next day, Moses entered the tent and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the tribe of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each of the leaders took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, Put back Aaron's staff in front of the Ark of the Covenant to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to the grumbling against me, so that they will not die. Moses did just as the Lord commanded him. The Israelites said to Moses, We will die. We are lost. We are all lost. Anyone who even comes near the tabernacle of the Lord will die. Are we all going to die? Deuteronomy 17. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. If a man or woman living among you in one of the towns the Lord gives you is found doing evil in the eyes of the Lord, your God in violation of his covenant, and contrary to my command has worshipped other gods, bowing down to them or to the sun or moon or stars in the sky, and this has been brought to your attention, then you must investigate it thoroughly. If it is true and it has been proved that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, take the man or woman who has done this evil deed to your city gate and stone that person to death. On the testimony of two or three witnesses, a person is to be put to death, but no one is to be put to death on the testimony of only one witness. The hands of the witness must be the first in putting that person to death, and then the hands of all the people. You must purge the evil from among you. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuit, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. You must act according to the decisions they give you at the place the Lord will choose. Be careful to do everything they instruct you to do. Act according to whatever they teach you and the decisions they give you. Do not turn aside from what they tell you, to the right or to the left. Anyone who shows contempt for the judge or for the priest who stands ministering there to the Lord your God is to be put to death. You must purge the evil from Israel. All the people will hear and be afraid and will not be contemptuous again. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settle in it, 
And you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us. Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God will choose. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him, and he is to read it all the days of his life, so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. Psalm 99. The Lord reigns. Let the nations tremble. He sits enthroned between the cherubim. Let the earth shake. Great is the Lord in Zion. He is exalted over all the nations. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king is mighty. He loves justice. You have established equity. In Jacob, you have done what is just and right. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called on the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them from the pillar of a cloud. They kept his statutes and the decrees he gave them. Lord our God, you answered them. You were to Israel a forgiving God, though you punished their misdeeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. In this story in Numbers, we get this reprieve from rebellion, and God shows supernaturally how he selected Aaron and his sons to be the priests for the purpose of helping the people navigate to atonement and intercede on their behalf. God turns Aaron's staff into a blossoming plant bearing almonds or fruit, and the people, for the first time in a long while, respond with this humility, although tragically, this will be short-lived. The story in Deuteronomy and we're looking at, we'll see that in other chapters of scripture too, this is telling of God's absolute victory in the land. It often reads with destruction, which can, and I think maybe it really should, trigger a response in us. I think of situations that result in a decision between fight, flight, or freeze. If this is God's story and his creation, and we're a part of it in a kingdom with no end, the issue is not ethnic differences. God created those. The issue is cultic differences, where false gods are being worshipped. Because so often culture and ethnicity are tethered together, I think it can be hard to separate them. For example, it might be easy to assume that Christianity is a Caucasian or Western religion. But really, as we're reading, it started before time began, moving through the beginning of creation and was captured and then shared first orally and then in writing through an ancient Near Eastern religion that took a stronghold in the Jewish tradition. It's a faith that reflects Yahweh God and that it stands outside of time, moved through creation and therefore initiated our story and the truth of the story moved through a couple in the garden, which used priestly language in Hebrew, then a family, a tribe, a nation, then largely fell back into the hands of a few families and then came through Jesus, his disciples, and a church community towards a kingdom of priests. Biola professor Marcus Zender wrote an article that describes how these stories are not about the genocide of the Canaanites because the root entomology of genocide is about the intentional killing of a race. This was not about race, but the Hebrew concept of, in quotes, the ban. 
which is characterized in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The importance was on the expulsion as opposed to extermination, and the focus of the ban was on idols. The focus of the lethal action is most often put on the ruler, cities, and materials. For example, Asher poles and altars used to worship other gods. There is lethal action and elements, but it is not focused on all-encompassing and systematic killing of a race, but warfare against a cause. And the initiative of violence generally comes actually from Canaanites themselves. Dr. Zender points to Joshua 11, verse 1 through 5 as an example. He describes the Canaanites as knowing God's plan and actively resisting. For example, even the Assyrian people that and, and Babylonians that had a lot of power at the time, they um, often claim that their family heritage is um, from Abraham as well. So they had through lineage this awareness of who God is in his plan, and they were actively re- resisting. Like the story of Pharaoh, there is a hardening of their hearts. References include Joshua eleven twenty and Joshua 2, 9 through 11. The Hebrew concept of ban reminds me of the exile from the Garden of Eden, where expulsion was required as a result of choosing an idol. Adam and Eve chose the tree of knowledge versus God and his way. This remains true in these stories. Dr. Zender also points out that the ban is not something that can be used freely by the Israelites. It is not human-centered. The ban is understood in a conditional way, and in some cases, other procedures are chosen. Dr. Zender points to the story of Rahab and the Gibeonites, which we'll get to in Joshua, where there are groups that are grafted into the story because they chose God's way. Inclusion is a real option. We've already began to see that in the story as foreigners are allowed into the process. Lastly, Dr. Zender points out that the concept of ban applies to the Israelites too. So, Today in this story, we saw that if people inside the community are choosing to worship other idols, they're exiled and, in fact, stoned. And then remember, we just read a story before that about God's response to rebellion where he swallowed up hundreds of people as the earth opened and took thousands more through a plague. The focus of ban is a part of the rescue mission. There must be a total victory over the adversary in order to restore and redeem us to close relationship with God, in close proximity to God with blessing, to be a blessing and fulfill his purpose in the way God designed. The motivation of ban is not in ethnicity, but in anyone and anything who resists Yahweh's plan belligerently. This clarity really helped me, and I include a link to Dr. Zender's work, which I hope is helpful for you. The story here in Deuteronomy 17 introduces some important points on God's wisdom regarding how. He designed humans to rule on earth. There's a famous Law of the Kings passage in Deuteronomy 17, verses 10 to 20. I remember first learning of this through Father Mike Schmidt's podcast and really paused to reflect on all it meant. And Jewish biblical scholar Neely Wazana also wrote an interesting article on the passage that gives meaningful background. I want to start with the context she describes for this passage. She reminds me that the author of the text was not absent from their own language and cultural context. No one writes a story in a silo. There was value for me in understanding what was going on when Deuteronomy was written. The Assyrian and Babylonian empires and the Israelites' frequent subjugation to their military, political, economic, and ideological dominant pressures would have influenced the people in this story and the biblical author. 
Like the case of Pharaoh, who was perceived as more than a leader but a god, the Assyrian kings that were victorious disseminated propaganda, literature to the, the elites that could read, and oral stories that were passed down that loudly conveyed the message of their divine right to rule, associating themselves as god or at least godlike. This ideological pressure evoked a response from non-dominant people groups like Israel, Professor Wazana describes. She says much of Deuteronomy is a reaction to their situation and describes the writings as looking as a vassal treaty. A vassal treaty is where one party is dominant, this is suzerain, and the others are subordinate, tributaries called vassals, yet they have an, some sort of internal autonomy. She describes this part of the story as subversive, where Yahweh is making edits in the sense that Deuteronomy is making clear that Yahweh is the overlord, the suzerain, and not the king of Assyria, and that Israel is the subordinate vassal. Deuteronomy is a politically charged scroll that also challenges the polytheistic religion of Assyria. What scripture is saying here is literally unprecedented in that time. It's so cool. Taken together, these biblical scholars delineate four important distinctions being made for Yahweh's way of seeing the world and how ruling should look in His way. Number one, God is the author of the law and maybe call it also a constitution, like a guiding set of principles. Everyone and everything is accountable to Him. I think of Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two: For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, He will save us. Number two, there is a clear division of political powers into separate spheres of authority being suggested for human representative management. So way back in the story, we learned about how we were seeing the foreshadowing that God would be, he would be the rescuer, the Messiah, that he would be the priest and high king. And here we're seeing that God is starting to delineate power of judges from priests and other types of leadership. There is subordinate number three. There is subordination of each branch to the authority of the law and ultimately to God. Said differently, those in authority are subject to the law, not above it. Number four, those with authority and subsequent power are not to use their position to get rich and personally fortified. They are not to use their portion of power and authority given as a blessing to hurt people and not to take more blessing for themselves. Their purpose is to be a blessing as God designed. The law of the kings in Deuteronomy 17, 14 to 20 is so interesting. Moses puts into quotes, when you, the people of Israel, say, let us set kings over us like all, like all the other nations, I just want to pause and then point to 1 Samuel 8, which is where Israel asks for a king and the Lord responds, is clearly that this is not what he wants for the people. He wants to be their king. Yet he allows it, like he allows so many other people to pull away into exile because he loves you so much that he's giving you a choice. It even says, they keep the law, they will remain for a long time. So even if you choose this way, if they keep the law, the king keeps the law, he's going to preserve their institution. Yet he warns them of the destruction a human king will ultimately bring. This model not only jeopardizes the people— this monarchy type of model. It jeopardizes the king 
we read the foreshadowing here that the accumulation of horses, wives, and wealth, silver and gold, will lead the king astray. Fast forward and we read that King David struggled with this, but through the grace of God seemed to master it by the end of his life, staying or being redeemed into the right relationship with the Lord. But his son, King Solomon, amasses 700 wives, 300 concubines, countless numbers of horses and wealth. And the story of him ends with his wives turning his heart to other gods. Ah, the Lord is the king, and we, although given a portion of power and authority, are his vassals. And the recommendation seems to be division of power, checks and balances, and total allegiance to God's will and ways, using any blessing we are given to be a blessing. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.